ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, happy Friday. Brooke Nindorf with you for The Country Hour. Thanks very much for your company today. Bit of a uh, bit of rain around. Have you seen that footage of the rain in far west New South Wales? Some areas copped uh, some pretty heavy downfalls. And while there was some damage in far west New South Wales, they are taking it all in their stride. He thought he was going to take this opportunity to miss out and have a swim in, in, in Pack Saddle's indoor swimming pool, as he called it. So, yeah, he got down and had a bit of a splash around, had a bit of a swim, and, yeah, all in the fun of if you don't laugh at it, you've got nothing else to do, have you? More from Pack Saddle very shortly, but I want to hear from you. What rain have you seen at your place the last 24 hours in a majority of uh, South Australia. It's uh, been quite painful, really, for a lot of people. Has, has it meant for you that harvesters had to come to a halt? If you are still going, that is. Maybe it's welcome rain, like up in far west New South Wales. Send me a text on 0467 Heine and Mary from Mount Gambia sent one through just before. They said, hello, Selena. Selena's not on today, but hello. Uh, we've had 30 millimetres of rain since 3am this morning. So some uh, big rain there in Mount Gambia as well. And we'll check in with the Bureau of Meteorology very shortly to find out uh, how much more is around. But first today, you might have heard on the show yesterday that protesters took to the streets of irrigation communities in southern New South Wales to show their opposition to the proposed water buybacks for the Murray-Darling Basin plan. So what is the most cost-effective way of recovering water in the Murray-Darling Basin? Professor Sarah Wheeler is a water economist at the University of Adelaide. She told Michael Condon water buybacks are the cheapest and most effective way of delivering water for the environment. Yes, so I mean, I've, I've been working in this for a long time um, and you know using water buybacks i.e. directly um, buying water back from voluntary sellers it is the method that we have obtained most of the water back uh, when you look at the data you know on average this is turning water entitlement entitlement into a you know apple is an apple to be able to compare across all the different entitlements across the basin but you know, when you look at it as a, on a long-term average annual yield, then the average price we've paid per megalitre by buybacks is just over $2,000, whereas the money we've spent on irrigation infrastructure, both on-farm programs and off-farm programs, it's over $6,500 per megalitre. So it's, you know, it's over three times more expensive to get the same amount of water back using on and off farm programs than buybacks and a lot of these off farm programs have got significant problems with them you know there's a a lot of environmental groups are incredibly worried about them Um, and they're just not delivering the money is going in and the water the water being returned is just not coming back so this is why there is a big call to a you know lift the cap on on buyback and b to go back to actually using voluntary buybacks as a method to get more water back for the environment. But irrigator groups say that there's lots of things on the table that the federal government is ignoring. Is that true? I mean, lots of options that they could look at to save water elsewhere. The government has been calling for a very long time for all the options um, to get this water back. 
you know, and some of these options, some of these new options, we're talking $30,000 a megalitre plus to get the water back in, and they're still incredibly uncertain. So, you know, if I was federal government and I'm being asked to cough up $30,000 a megalitre, return is uncertain. Is is uh, the environment going to be harmed by the project? You know, you've, you've got to cast a level of scrutiny over some of these projects, you know, and criticising voluntary buybacks and the impact it's having in communities. Uh, I mean, there's, there's lots of issues in that. Um, you know, rural communities really do believe that Voluntary buybacks are going to, you know, decimate rural communities. A lot of this belief is fueled by very poor economic consultancies that have been done. That, you know, we know from work that we've we've done on reviewing a whole heap of economic studies within the base, and a lot of this work is incredibly poor. It's not robust. It's not actually based on real data, and it's not taking into account all the factors that make up um, drivers of rural community viability. You know, the question comes from a society point of view when we're trying to worry about how do we get to a sustainable Australia? How do we get to a sustainable rural communities? And, you know, an environmental, um, environmental outcomes, ecosystems matter. We're also in a climate change world. Some of the irrigators or farm groups say that, uh, you know, we've got our priorities right. We should be focusing on food production. We should be the, the food bowl using the irrigation water for that. As an economist, what, what you know, what should we be doing there? You know, what's, what's the best use of the water? Yeah, well, I mean, Murray-Darling Basin is already known as the food bowl of, of Australia. And, um, you know, 70% of its production is exported. So, you know, the, the whole argument that, um, you know, if we're taking water away from food, we're going to end up with reductions in production and we start importing food. It's, it's quite ridiculous, to tell you the truth. Um, there are so many other drivers. Um, you know, we've got a situation currently in the Riverland. This is not viticultural farmers' fault. But, you know, they're not picking their grapes. They're letting their grapes fall on the ground. Having more water to water grapes that are not going to get picked, that's not going to help anyone. You know, the whole issue of food waste, the whole issue of um, farm viability, it's, it's a lot more important than just how much water is available to uh, produce a certain amount of production. So uh, it, it becomes a bit of a sound bite, and that's how I feel that lobby groups have made it, that... Oh, without water, we're all got, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. It's just not reality. Water economist Professor Sarah Wheeler speaking with Michael Condon. Now, Andrew Christian is an irrigator at Echuca. He says he resents being told he shouldn't be allowed to sell his water rights to the federal government. He also dismissed the claim that farm production will fall dramatically as a result of any water being sold to benefit the environment. Michael, I find it quite offensive that uh, the powers that be being local governments, other individuals, state governments, want to be an impost on two entities, one being willing sellers, the other being willing buyers, being the Commonwealth. It's quite offensive that they can interfere in that transaction, our property right. That that doesn't sit well with myself and also many of my peers in the irrigated agriculture. So you'd like the right to be able to sell your licence if you want to? Yeah, I'm not necessarily a willing seller today or tomorrow, but if I want to or things change, like many of my peers, we want the ability to be able to transact or consummate uh, transactions with the Commonwealth, being 
being only another player in the marketplace which would effectively be running with the mums and dads who are in the buying space. There's the corporates in the buying space and then we'd see the Commonwealth in the buying space. So adds more competition to the market, drives the price yeah. a bit higher. At most certainly a bit higher, but not to to know to make it unobtainable for everybody, but certainly it would make it a more competitive space. Now, um, some of the irrigator groups and some of the councils say, oh, you know, this, if we allow this to go through, it'll mean the end of productive agriculture in the food bowl. What's your view on that? Michael, that's a resounding, to coin a term, that is a furphy. The Productivity Commission's report states clearly that some of that misinformation that is emanating is being written by consultants who have been engaged to you know, return with that exact information. I can only speak of if I was to sell all of my entitlement to a corporate or the Commonwealth, my farm doesn't go into a hiatus and stop producing. We reside where we reside still. We still retain ownership of the tangible asset, which is the land. And one of the other tangible assets would leave the land and go to the Commonwealth for environmental purposes and sometimes be returned in times where the Commonwealth doesn't have a need. We've seen it before. It can get returned back into agriculture, into the consumptive pool. To say that those transactions would decimate farms is an absolute furphy because I'd continue to plant crops. I'd continue to be productive, albeit not in an irrigated sense as much. There's no atomic bomb going off and taking farms out of the equation. They're still there. They're still operational. They'll still employ people, but we won't be irrigating with that permanent entitlement as much. Andrew Christian, an irrigator at Echuca, speaking to Michael Condon. Now it's time to get the floaties and canoes out across areas of the far west of New South Wales as some much-needed rain has fallen in the region. 175 kilometres north of Broken Hill, Glenis Gilby was watching the clouds roll in before it dumped 50 millimetres in 30 minutes. Andrew Schmidt spoke to Glenis about what she saw. In about 30 minutes we received uh, about 50 mil of rain just just opened up and fell on us. <laughs> Did it cause much damage? Um, we've got what we call our dining room, which is the, what everyone calls the wool shed. If anyone's been out here, they know you've got to sort of step down into there. It was just completely full to there and was lapping into the shop. Our SES headquarters on the side of the roadhouse had actually flooded and sort of come up to the walls of the tyres and the truck vehicles in there and yeah and all around the back through the back of the private residence of the manager's quarters or mayor's rooms and that um was all flooding and coming out through into the dining room it was just i've never seen anything like it <laughs> and glenn so we put this in into some sort of perspective how much rain would you've had for the year a bit over 100 mil uh probably um oh geez you put me on the spot there mate i'm trying to think of it off the top of my head um i'd say Probably an inch and a half or probably a couple of inches of rain through this year so far. Yeah. So not even 100 mil. Dry as a sayo biscuit. Countryside's starting to burn off. It's starting to warm up and you get smashed with this. As you said, it caused a bit of damage, but you probably sit back in the next few days and think, well, how good was that? Oh, I tell you what, it's bloody brilliant. We went down um, and had, once we'd closed up last night, we got a chance to. We went down and had a look at the Paxaddle Creek and she's got some water running through it, which is a bloody one marvellous thing. She's going to go straight into our main dam down there. So that's going to give us some water to get through. Yeah, she was everything was getting pretty low. Rainwater tanks have got some water in them. So, yeah, it was just good because everything was getting 
yeah, a bit scarce there. Yeah. Did you have any hail accompany the rain? No, we didn't actually. We were quite surprised. Um, at first, when we went out to have a look, I just went out to pick up some rubbish and we could. So I just had a look at this cloud and I thought, oh my God, if that opens up on us, we're done. And it just built and swelled around and then all of a sudden, yeah, started to drop some heavy drops and then she just come in and like Mia said, holy dooly, she just dropped it. <laughs> now, Glennis, uh, we're hearing a bit of a whisper here in Broken Hill that one of the workers had a makeshift swimming pool in the dining room as well. Yes, young dry. <laughs> he thought he wasn't going to take this opportunity to miss out and have a swim in, in, in Paxaddle's indoor swimming pool, as he <laughs> called it. So, yeah, he got down and had a bit of a splash around, had a bit of a swim and, yeah, all in the fun of if you don't laugh at it, you got nothing else to do, have you? Uh, and what's on the agenda today? You've got to clean it all up? Yeah, massive clean-up today. Yeah, get all the rest of the water out of the wool shed and um, blew up one of our freezers. So we've got to sort of make, you know, move some stuff around to, to, get, to accommodate. Now we're down one freezer and, yeah, so, yeah, a bit of a clean-up and, yeah, and then back into it. Didn't stop us last night, so still operating, no worries. So everything's still good. Glennis Gilby from the Pack Saddle Roadhouse. And over at Quinnaby Station, manager Greg Connors also experienced a nice dumping of rain. We ended up with uh, 52 mils over two days. So on the uh, 21st, we got 29 mils, and that was a heavy, real heavy uh, thunderstorm. And then the following day, mate, in the afternoon, 23 mils on the 23rd. Uh, I understand. So, yeah, no, very good. Um, Hopefully it run a bit of water. We're not unsure about how widespread it was yet. There was nothing up the top end. I spoke to Lindon this morning and they, they only got a couple of mils. So um, it's always hard to tell with these isolated thunderstorms. Could be a lot in one spot and not much in between, basically. Yeah, I was saying that earlier, Greg, that, that this time of the year between now and, say, February, and they, these systems roll through, you just keep your fingers crossed you're sitting under one of those clouds. Exactly right, yeah. Hopefully it's over a dam somewhere to catch some water to put us through the summer. Yeah. Did you get a bit of hail with that rain? There was a slight hail. Disappeared quickly when it hit the ground, but there was one patch on the first day of the rain that had some hail in it. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I've pretty well got a fair idea what you're about to tell me, but what was the country looking like prior to this storm? Oh, there was still still good ground cover, mm. although since June it was getting progressively drier, but it was still there. The cattle, all the stock were in... Still good order, um, but yeah, we had our fingers crossed for rain before it, um, the hot, real hot weather really set in. And Greg's it pretty much over the next couple of days just getting around and seeing that if it was a bit widespread and how your dams are looking? That's right, mate. As soon as we can, um, we haven't got the plane here at the moment, so we've just got to wait for a day or two. And then um, it did lay out quite a bit of water, so once that's uh, done, we'll, we'll get out and see uh, where it all fell. And your main house dam, a uh, bit of a run-in for that? There was a local catch. <clears throat> we don't rely on the house dam too much because it is only local catch unless it's a humongous rainwater comes in from the east to us, which doesn't happen very often. So we run on underground water predominantly for the homestead. Should uh, Once you do get the chance to get a look around, and as I said, I hope it is a bit widespread for you, Greg, that uh, what you receive then should carry you through the next few months? Yeah, well, if we've had the same rate spread over the place, definitely the summer's looking a lot more rosy than it was two days ago. Yeah. So... Um, with the dry ground cover that's there, protects the new shoots that are coming up, so it should be good.
Quinnaby Station Manager Greg Connor speaking to Andrew Schmidt. So quite a bit of rain up around far west New South Wales and you can see some photos and videos as well on the ABC Broken Hill Facebook page. We've had a text come through, 37 millimetres at the Follies, long awaited for um, as they've only had 73 millimetres for the year prior to this rain. So happy days, which is great to hear. The rain is coming for those that want it. For others that don't want it at the moment, it's uh, it's not such good news. We'll hear more on that very shortly. It's 21 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. So this rain that we've had over the last few days will have many people checking their rain gauges. And for many, it's not been welcomed as farmers try to get off their grain during harvest. And also, grape growers across the state are a bit on edge as they monitor for downy mildew. It's a fungus that can spread disease in grapevines when warm, wet conditions are at play, with some farmers losing their entire crop last year. Plant pathologist Peter McGarry told Julie Kimberley that vineyards in the Riverland are in the clear for now. Uh, they're close to it, but they're not meeting the criteria at this point in time. Uh, a rule of thumb that a lot of people are aware of in the old uh, rap song used to tell us was uh, 10, 10, 24, and when 10, 10, 24 has come, downy mildew's just begun. And what that requires, the rule of thumb talks about 10 millimetres of rainfall while the temperature is above 10 in the 24-hour period. And what we haven't had is about the 24-hour period since it started raining, so it's still a little bit early to know. Uh, and also, whilst the temperature has been good, the rainfalls have been quite variable and insufficient at this point to uh, trigger downy mildew. Do you mind just explaining what downy mildew is exactly? Yes, it used to be called a fungus. To be uh, truthful about the full thing now, it's actually a, a, an algae. Uh, so it's an algae-like fungus. It causes disease to spread in vineyards when the conditions are warm enough and wet enough for long enough. And so it will kill bunches if the berries are still susceptible. And the good news is at the moment, most of the berries in our vineyards are getting around pea size or more, in which case it's resistant to disease. So there's not a great urgency for the disease at this point in time. Now, is it a straightforward disease to prevent and treat? And how costly is that process for growers? Uh, It's quite costly and when you think of say about $100 a hectare or more to apply a spray, multiply that by hectares you get a number of significant spray costs for each event. So the the aim is to control the disease with as few sprays as possible and that's why we've been looking at the epidemiology of disease, that is under what conditions does the disease spread. So then to give alerts, which we've been doing in the Riverland for something like 29 or 30 years now, and uh, we're looking to ramp that up even more from now on. So no alerts just yet, you're, you're, but if conditions keep going, there possibly could be one. Yes, it requires, we require 16 hours of the wet soil being wet, and since 8pm 8 8 last night, we've only had 5 to 6 hours, maybe 7 to 8 at best, with sufficiently wet for sufficiently long enough. Okay. And so we're looking for 16 hours at least. So we're about halfway through the process, and it will depend on what the thunderstorms bring in the next hours as to what happens. And last vintage was one of the worst for disease and wiped out 100% of some people's crops. Any advice for people who may be facing the same problems again? Yes, there are two things that cause the 100% loss. Uh, Downy mildew is sometimes the cause. Powdery mildew was the other. Uh, I think we need to be vigilant for spraying. We need to know when to spray best. We need to listen to the information, therefore, to get that so we know just exactly when to apply sprays with maximum efficiency for control. 
and when you can avoid not to. But at this time of the year, if you, we haven't had any downy mildew to, to, to start for this season yet, even though we're so far into it. So there's quite relatively little disease risk at the moment, even if we do get a first or primary infection. So the disease needs to go through several cycles before it would do any harm. So at this point, we're not too bad a position, actually. Plant pathologist Peter McGarry speaking with Julie Kimberley. And uh, let's find out what is happening with this weather situation at the moment. We're joined by Simon Timke at the Bureau of Meteorology. Good afternoon, Simon. Hello there, Brooke. It's rain, bit of rain around. What's uh, what's happening and what's coming? Yeah, look, there sure has been uh, some significant rainfall totals in parts of the state. And, and most areas have received it at least a little bit. But the main areas where we've seen some uh, some higher falls are uh, uh, eastern districts uh, and about and east of the uh, the Flinders and, and Mount Lofty ranges. Uh, wettest rainfall I've seen is, uh, well, highest rainfall I've seen, I should say, is 46 millimetres at Narracourt, uh, Coonawarra 32, Padthaway 31, uh, and then over the eastern slopes of the Mount Lofty ranges, Mount Torrens has had 31, uh, Mount Pleasant 27, uh, and quite a few places around the, about the Mount Lofty ranges uh, uh, and parts of the Murray Lands and Riverland in that sort of 15 to 25 millimetre range. So some, some significant rainfall totals. Further west, totals generally not so much, uh, and similarly further north, generally not so much, although I did note that Yunta had picked up 20 millimetres, so some fairly high rainfall for that part of the state. Um, looking on the satellite picture at the moment, large areas of clear sky across the north and the west of the state, um, but areas sort of south of about Port Augusta or thereabout, uh, quite cloudy conditions. We've seen some thunderstorms over eastern districts uh, earlier in the day. We did have a severe thunderstorm morning out for parts of the southeast districts earlier in the day for that heavy rainfall that I mentioned around the, the southeast districts. Just starting to see a couple more thunderstorms pop up uh, uh, just to the east of the Mount Lofty Ranges over the western part of the Murray Lands. A couple of storms showing up and some quite uh, uh, significant looking, uh, looking cells there. Uh, and also extending into the far uh, west of the uh, of the riverland there as well. Uh, still, still some areas of of rain around the place. Uh, mostly over southern Spencer Gulf, parts of York Peninsula, parts of KI, showing a bit of rain and some uh, isolated showers uh, elsewhere over that area south of, uh, of about Port Augusta. So still still a bit of weather around the place, and that low pressure trough that's driving that weather is still. Um, hanging around over the eastern districts of SA uh, and will continue to do so uh, uh, until gradually moving eastwards a little bit later on Saturday uh, and uh, and Sunday. So uh, a, a bit of weather over the southern part of the state still in particular and the eastern part for today and tomorrow. Uh, thunderstorms likely about eastern districts uh, and, and possible uh, about central uh, parts in, including Air Peninsula. So still still a, a possibility of seeing some of those thunderstorms around and, and particularly about the eastern districts, a, a, a chance of some severe thunderstorms with locally heavy rainfall as we observed earlier this morning. So uh, over those districts, do, do keep an eye out for potential warnings today and again tomorrow. Well, I think that area of potential will contract southwards tomorrow, most likely be confined to just the lower southeast district for that risk of severe thunderstorms. But thunderstorms still possible over eastern districts during during Saturday. There is a chance of a thunderstorm right up in the far northwest corner uh, of the state too today and tomorrow. Uh, Sunday, 
should see uh, uh, an easing of the weather, uh, just a bit of shower activity, uh, mostly about the southern agricultural area and near far western coast. Just a slight chance of a shower thunderstorm in the far northeast corner too. So significant easing of the weather on Sunday. Uh, and then we start to see a, a little bit more development of weather again early next week. We've got another trough developing over central and eastern parts of the state, uh, which we're ex expecting to interact with a trough through the middle levels of the atmosphere as it moves across from the west. So I think we'll see further um, shower and thunderstorm develop, uh, development on, on Monday about central and eastern parts, also near far western coasts. Uh, Shower, uh, sorry, thunderstorms about central and eastern parts as well. So uh, a bit more weather on the way on uh, on Monday and Tuesday as those systems move across, uh, and then an easing again through the middle part of next week. So there is potential for some some more rainfall over southern areas in particular on Monday and Tuesday, but but generally across central and eastern parts. So some more wet weather on the way. The sort of rainfall totals we're talking about is um, getting up to 5 to 15 millimetres, about central and eastern parts again for that period to the end of Tuesday. Some local falls of 15 to 30 millimetres possible about the agricultural area far south of the northeast pastoral district. Some local heavier falls with uh, with thunderstorms too, Brooks. So some, some more wet weather on the way. Thanks very much, Simon. Thanks, Brooke. Simon Timkey at the Bureau of Meteorology. And I haven't, uh, won't better get to the Western Inlands just yet. I'll get to them very shortly. Make sure you stay tuned to the Country Hour. It's half past 12. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Hello, thanks for your company on this Friday afternoon. Quick look at uh, the Western Inlands for tomorrow. Partly cloudy, high chance of showers in the far east and slight chance elsewhere and the chance of a thunderstorm. Some overnight temperatures falling to between 16 and 19 with daytime temperatures reaching 29 to 34. For the lower western, partly cloudy, high chance of showers in the far east and a slight chance elsewhere with the chance of a thunderstorm. And overnight temperatures falling to between 13 and 17 with daytime temperatures reaching 26 to 31. Now, what's going to get us through this afternoon? Seafood and wine, I reckon. Cafes and restaurants might soon have to start labelling where their, where their seafood that they're selling comes from. We'll have more on that shortly. Also today, the search for the perfect no-low wine. No-low meaning non and low alcohol. They're becoming more and more popular, but is it hard to find a good one that still tastes like wine? The topic of Nolo wine, really, I couldn't wrap my head around. It seemed funny to be paying the money for it, and, and why would you compared to everything else? I had a few, few medical incidences last year, and, and so all of a sudden, Nolo, out of nowhere, Nolo became from a research interest to actually a lifestyle choice where it was something that we actually needed to embrace. Fortunately, the wine industry is really now starting to take it seriously. More on that today. And uh, have you found a good Nolo wine? Why have you chosen to go down that path? You can let me know. Send me a text on 0467 922 891. But before that, let's get the latest from the newsroom. We're joined by Matt Coleman. Good afternoon, Matt. 
Hello, Brooke. In the news this afternoon, the Minister for Women and the Prevention of Domestic and Family Violence has told a rally in Adelaide that the state government will consider a royal commission into the issue. Hundreds of protesters have gathered on the steps of Parliament to call for an investigation into domestic violence, with the suspicious deaths of four women in separate attacks this week. Minister Katrine Hilliard expects a roundtable meeting involving fellow ministers and industry representatives to be held once the Premier Peter Malinowskis returns some prerogatives rental leave next week. A school bus has been destroyed in a fire at Senior near Bordertown in the state's southeast. All passengers were evacuated without injuries before the country fire service arrived at the blaze on Red Bluff Road about a quarter past eight this morning. And the new management company taking over Adelaide's Ice Arena says the venue could reopen as early as next Tuesday. The state's only ice rink has been temporarily closed, leaving hundreds of members without anywhere to skate or play ice hockey. Richard Laidlaw says there's been an issue with the former management company that's slowing down the handover process. More news at one o'clock. Thanks very much, Matt. Matt Coleman in the newsroom. And did you know that country of origin labelling is mandatory for seafood sold in either supermarkets or other retail settings, but it's not a requirement for fish served in restaurants or cafes. But that could be changed as of today. State, Territory and Commonwealth Consumer Affairs Ministers will be voting on a proposal to adopt country of origin labelling laws for fish sold in hospitality venues. Venues would need to label any fish sold with an A for products harvested in Australia, I for fish that comes from international, and M for any seafood that contains a mix of locally harvested and international products. Kerry Tomasis is the executive of Seafood Industry South Australia and says it will be a welcome move. Yeah, essentially the seafood industry has been advocating for over two decades now that the local consumers should be aware about where their seafood comes from. And uh, federally, it has been supported that there needs to be labelling laws that indicate to the consumers whether seafood that they're eating is Australian sourced or comes from overseas. And currently it's mandatory for country of origin labelling in supermarkets or other retail settings, which I believe is fish and chip shops, but not currently for restaurants and cafes, which is what could potentially change. Correct. So basically from uh, with this leg- with this uh, laws passing through state as well as federally, then all seafood consumed will be labelled from source areas. Why is this so important to have something like this? It is essential on, on two main fronts. One, it is that Australia and the Australian consumers are very sustainability conscious. So we need to make sure that our seafood comes from sustainably sourced uh, production. And also it is very good for local consumers to basically eat uh, seafood that is, uh, comes from the pristine waters of our country. Do you think it will see more restaurants and cafes serving Australian product because they want to be seen doing this? I am very, very uh, encouraged that a lot more restaurants and uh, cafes will be using it uh, because it is, you know, most consumers are very, very uh, aware of where their food comes from. And I think it's going to be very, very encouraging for their businesses to do so. 
Now, it's going to be labelled, um, if it goes through, A for products harvested in Australia, I for fish um, from international, and M for a, a mixture. Is there a lot of product that is a mix of locally harvested and international products? And how, how does that work with seafood? No, the majority the majority will be either uh, international or local, and the the mixture will be a. It's more like a species of fish that can be sourced locally as well as internationally, and some people might choose to 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 do that. But I think a lot of the local businesses are going to be encouraging their their consumers to be to be eating local and. Is there, I guess, enough stock, enough product of Australian um, seafood if restaurants and cafes want to be stocking the, the Australian product? Absolutely. There, there, there is enough seafood supply locally and, uh, and the seafood industry has been advocating very strongly that we should be using local product uh, more. So there will be no problem as far as supply to cater the needs of any increased demand. And how do you think this this vote will go, Kerry? What what's been the South Australian support for it? Well, uh, from what uh, our seafood sector is hearing across Australia, this will be supported. This will be supported by uh, other states as well. So we're very very positive and very very optimistic that uh, we will be now having nationally uh, consistent legislation for labelling of seafood. And this has been going on for, for quite a while, Kiri. Are you pleased to see it finally sort of getting to this point? Absolutely. I, you know, for myself, I've been uh, directly involved with this for nearly two decades. And some other, you know, advocates uh, started this journey before myself uh, got involved. So, you know, Seafood Industry Australia and, uh, and the chief executive there, Veronica Papacosta, did an amazing job nationally to get this on the right of, of federal government. And, yes, absolutely, we are excited and happy that we have, we're getting close to the destination. Kiri Tomasis, the executive of Seafood Industry South Australia. Brooke Nindorf with you. It's 22 minutes to one. This week on Landline, tea time on the Sunshine Coast. We went into the tea making thing fairly, very naively, thinking, oh, this will be easy. It certainly isn't. And the outback posting and power of community. Are people jealous of this mail run? I wouldn't know. (laughs) Well, I would be if I was on another mail run. That's Landline, Sundays 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. To wine now, and South Australian producers continue to look for new export markets to fill the void left by China after it slapped huge tariffs on Australian wine. Those tariffs were recently lifted, but few expect China to buy as much Australian wine as it once did, and it's part of the reason some local winemakers are overstocked with wine. So where else can it go? One market being pursued is India, and this week the first shipment from two SA wineries has landed in India as a trade delegation from our state attends the country's largest wine show. As State Trade Minister Nick Champion explained, it's the first time these wineries have entered the Indian market. Well, it's an important uh, sign of the expanding trade relationship. Uh, for the first time, McLaren-Bale-based Wirrawirra and Langhorne Creeks at Matala um, are entering the Indian wine market, and that, we think, will pave the, the way for many other uh, local South Australian brands to, to export to the country. 
And of course, it uh, comes on the weekend of the annual India Wine Trading Event, Mumbai Pro Wine 2023. So, really important uh, initiative by Wirra Wirra and Matala. And uh, we think that, uh, you know, will really pave the way, I think, for some success in the Indian market. And South Australia does have its own ex- uh, exhibit at that Pro Wine Mumbai exhibition? That's right, we do. And uh, we're running some masterclasses there with South Australian wine taking centre stage and being uh, led by a very respected Indian wine educator, Nikhil Agarwal. Um, so we hope that uh, we're just going to raise the profile of you know what is a really great product that we have out of South Australia, a premium product in wine, and, and open up yet another market for our exports. You've also announced so an Indian chapter of the South Australian Wine Ambassadors Club. How does that sort of add value to, to what you're trying to do in terms of getting wine into India? Well, we found uh, the Wine Ambassadors Club to be really successful in all the markets that we've opened it up in. Um, and it, it really was a response to some of the issues we had with access to the China market, forcing diversification. But we found it's had a real value in and of itself uh, in that it, it really just helps us find people in in these markets which want to champion South Australian unique wine culture and unique wine products. And uh, it helps drive, I think, a a more sophisticated understanding of South Australia's unique terroir, um, our unique offering to wine uh, consumers. Uh, Last year, the uh, trade agreement with India that came into effect obviously uh, significantly reduced some of those tariffs on Australian wine. And you mentioned the difficulties with trade into China there. We've heard a fair bit about uh, certainly some of the oversupply issues, uh, particularly in the Riverland with red wine, um, because of uh, you know not being able to get some of that wine out to export markets. Is India a possibility to take a quite a lot of that? It, can it make up some of the ground that we've lost uh, into the China market? Because I don't think anything can really replace uh, the China market. And of course, we're hoping that the stabilisation of the trading relationship between China and Australia will will help. Uh, alleviate some of those issues, but I don't think we'll ever see it return to what it was prior to the the trade disruption. Uh, What India represents is a unique opportunity in its own right. It will take some time, I think, for for South Australian and Australian wines to, you know, to, to get into the premium end of the market here. But we've really you know, we understand that diversification is really the key uh, to protect people's investments and to protect jobs, uh, and so that's why we're pursuing it in and of itself as, a, as an economic strategy. I think now it makes a lot of sense. Trade Minister Nick Champion speaking from Mumbai to Selena Green. And as the Minister said, he doubts China will return to its previous levels of buying Australian wine. So what are some other alternative markets? McLaren Vale-based family-owned winery Maxwell Wines is looking to the United States where it's just signed a new distribution contract. Owner Mark Maxwell says it'll be a boon to the McLaren Vale wine region. Um, A company called Artisanal Wines and Spirits, they are part of a big entity called Southern Glazers. Southern Glazers is a very big national distributor of all alcohols, like spirits, beer, wines, in the United States of America. And they've got a division that is specifically looking at sort of smaller volumes of premium wines. So how did this all come about? Because I have heard that the US can be a little bit of a tricky market to get into initially. It is. It's... um. Uh, quite often there could be individual states that might express some interest, but each state in America has got slightly different rules. So suddenly it makes it quite hard to manage all of that. 
So the benefit of being with a, a national company is that they'll manage all of those differences in state taxes and different rules and so on. So um, it's, it's a big, big help to us as a small Australian company. You were part of this US market entry program uh, through the state government with some support there. So did that help sort of make that connection? Enormously. The um, combination of Wine Australia, who's the body that sort of looked after exports for Australian wine, and the state government's contribution to a project where you could uh, submit wines. They then went to look for potential matches, you know, like speed dating, uh, and put us together with this company. We then discussed our sort of likes and potential, and they chose us uh, as one of the few companies they're going to take from Australia that are small, family-owned, um, and involved things like we offer sustainability practices, things that they were interested in, things good for the future, good for marketing. And is this the first time that the Maxwell Wines will be going into the US market? No, it is. We've had previous connections. We had um, quite a good sort of smaller sort of business going up until about 2008 until the GFC came in and the people who owned that import company uh, just thought it was too hard to go on, so they closed it and we lost our our connection with that. So we've been sort of looking, or really you know, looking around the world all the time and you get leads, you follow up with an email or send samples, and so sometimes you get lucky. So what does this uh, agreement allow for in terms of where it will get your wines into in the US? Where will they go? Artisanal, their model, have thought that there's a number of people in the United States who are sort of wine savvy. They read about wine, they know about it, but they weren't being given the opportunity to have any sort of more quality Australian wines. So they've chosen five states that they think are sort of the, the trial ones to start, where they know that those people are sort of quite conscious about wine and food matching and, and interested in, in wine, and they're just going to launch the product in those states to test the market. As you mentioned there, and they're looking for those sort of premium wine. So what are the Americans wanting? Well, we're not sure what they want, but what we're hoping is that the current image of Australian wine is what I think some Americans call critter labels, you know, where they've got a critter on the label. But the wine market that the artisanal are going for is going to be above the nine ninety five. It's going to be more into the sort of retail $20, $30, a bottle area. And what does it mean for the winery and, I guess, wider for McLaren Vale to, uh, you know, to get into these kind of markets and, and get agreements like this? So in two parts. Firstly, for Maxwell's, we, like lots of companies, certainly enjoyed dealing with China. That was a good business and we went well, but that's now you know, not there. So it'll be good for our growers and our own fruit. We'll be able to sort of bring that back in to sort of top up the difference. Um, once we're there and some of these people see the benefits or the, the quality, hopefully see the quality of McLaren Vale, that will expand their desire to get more of it. So I think that really should lead into being better for the state. Obviously, China removing those tariffs only a little while ago, but there's not really much of an expectation that they will be taking as much Australian wine as they have in the past. So it is important to, to look for some of these other markets, even though individually they might not fill that gap left by China. Yeah, I think that's true. I think as much as we did enjoy Chinese since they, uh, have, we haven't been with them for a few years, I hear that they've also now started to drink some white wine as well as red wine, whereas our previous business was all red, and um, that they are themselves going through sort of tough times. So I don't know if more expensive wine will still be as 
free-flowing as it used to be. Are there other international markets that you're keen to get your wines into or have been able to get your wines into? We've still got the existing overseas customers that we had, but up until COVID, and then they slowed right down. And now they're still with us, but only in maybe a third to half the volume they used to be. There's generally a feeling in those markets that we are, they're, they're everybody's struggling economically, but they just think people are drinking a bit less. So um, we, we still have people like Japan and Malaysia and Hong Kong and lots of Asian countries. Then you know, obviously like a hub in Europe is in Germany. Got very, very active people there, and so that's starting to grow. And I've just been to a wine Australia uh, tasting that was held in Copenhagen and Stockholm in Sweden. And I really like Sweden. I think it's really, they're very open-minded about anything new, um, and they love drinking wine. So I think it could be a very good country for Australian wines. Maxwell Wines founder and owner Mark Maxwell speaking with Selena Green and we we're talking just before about um, uh, SA producers looking to send wine to India as well as another option we've had a text from Steve at Clare he says wine to India India we better stop winning the cricket <laughs> very true there Steve they might uh, turn it back if we keep winning any more World Cups Let's stick with wine now. And are you a fan of no-low wine? Well, no-low meaning non and low alcohol. The industry has been busy catching up with no-low beers and spirits, which have been very successful in the Australian marketplace. For Dr Steve Goodman from the University of Adelaide, wine has been a lifelong passion, working in the industry for over 25 years. But even he was not all that interested in drinking no-low wine himself. But that all changed once his wife was forced to give up alcohol. We started down the NOLO path probably three or four years ago in terms of research and honestly at the time as a dedicated wine consumer and someone with a great interest in wine, it's one of my wife and my shared loves, the topic of NOLO wine really I couldn't wrap my head around. It seemed funny to be paying the money for it and and why would you compared to everything else. I had a few medical incidents last year and, and medication I was on for six months had me away from alcohol. We just started to move back onto it. My wife was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is doing okay at the moment. And so all of a sudden, NOLO, out of nowhere, NOLO became from a research interest to actually a lifestyle choice where it was something that we actually needed to embrace and to move into. It was quite remarkable to start to see how the idea of beverages without alcohol can appear out of nowhere. Um, It's not just through choice, it's sometimes by circumstances. Fortunately, the wine industry is really now starting to take it seriously. The market is is moving quite quickly in terms of growth. So the wine industry is looking at generating wines for consumers who either have that that choice forced upon them or who make that choice themselves to be providing a, a wine beverage that actually delivers the enjoyment and the satisfaction taste-wise and mouthfeel-wise of what a wine with alcohol does. And what do you think of the quality of no-low wines? What have both you and your wife found uh, in your journey of drinking them? So I'll be honest, we're more, more down the path of alcoholic beers seem to really be taking the cake in terms of where they're delivering in terms of taste. Some of them are actually quite difficult to pick up the taste. And but through, you can actually now get even craft beers that are no-low. So wine is lagging behind quite a bit. The majority of wines really haven't managed to capture that mouthful yet. So hence the research that we're involved in now and working with our colleagues out at um, the Waite Institute, the, the School of Food, Agriculture and Wine, to actually look at what can be done from anything from actually the grapes that are grown, which grapes are grown, how they're harvested, different steps in making the wine, different yeast, different methods of de the wine to still get that mouthful. Because in wine, 
the alcohol actually contributes quite a lot to the mouthfeel. So the wine industry is starting to take it seriously and putting some significant dollars and resources into it. But it is improving? You and your wife are, are getting closer to finding that wine that tastes like alcoholic wine? It's, it's, let's just say it's, it's still a mission for a bit of a search for the Holy Grail, but it, it's out there and it's coming closer. And fortunately, the Australian wine industry is doing a lot at this point in time, not just wineries and large wine companies, but also industry as a whole starting to get behind it. So this is something we really need to embrace. And I guess from a commercial sense, I think back 20 years ago when I started my wine marketing consulting and, and research then, it was looking at, well, the wine industry needs these younger consumers to start looking at choosing wine over beer or spirits because that's going to be a 40 or 50-year purchase as a consumer to choose wine. If 18 to 24-year-olds now are moving away from alcohol and if, if they start to move towards beer, we're actually looking at the 18 to 24-year-olds being a 40, 50, 60-year market. So there's a lot at stake when you look at what this is going to generate over the next 40, 50, 60 years of those consumers' purchases. University of Adelaide wine and marketing expert, Dr Steve Goodman. While certainly a challenge, there are plenty of Australian businesses happy to give Nolo wine a crack. Ben Mellows started Polka Drops in South Australia in 2021 after seeing a gap in the marketplace for quality Nolo wines. He says improvements are being made in the industry all the time, but customers do already seem pretty happy with the products. When we got into it, there was less people than there are now, definitely, and we had anticipated the amount of new entrants when we when we got into it. But we, we came in at a good time as far as the South Australian dedicated non-alcoholic brand. There wasn't really too many others doing much, so we got in not knowing how it would go, but thought utilising the technology that's available to remove the alcohol and South Australian wine would be a good place for us to start. And yeah, it's kind of evolved really from an interest in the in the category and seeing some potential, uh, and then some key learnings once we launched. Once we launched, and saw that there really was demand for it. So, how has it all been going? How has it been learning about the industry and actually making the product? It's been fascinating. It's very different to our food manufacturing and you're dealing with something that people have very strong perceptions of in non-alcoholic. Everyone's got a, an opinion and they're quite often justified in, in not thinking that they're the best tasting product in non-alcoholic drinks because you're trying to take something that is very well... Uh, every, everyone in Australia is fairly, fairly well versed in what wine tastes like and the, the expectations of what a non-alcoholic product might taste like often they are expect people are expecting to taste really bad so our job is to try and create a product that gives people the same experience of drinking and of having an alcoholic drink just without the alcohol and in doing so it's been uh, educational for both us and for the consumers who we're trying to give options that really are something to be enjoyed and something to be celebrated and something to be shared uh, just without the alcohol so it's been um in many respects challenging but in in other respects it's been enormously rewarding to be able to add some products with a bit, a bit more depth than um to the to the category yes for people that might not understand how difficult is it to get non-alcoholic wine to taste as much as possible like real wine it's very difficult because with alcohol with wine so much of the flavor is contained within the alcohol so if you're removing the alcohol you're taking away a lot of the body and now we, we use good quality South Australian wine from different regions. We choose particular varietals of wine that will survive the 
the ARC process. Once we remove the alcohol, that's kind of when we begin. So we take the alcohol out and then we work a little bit differently in that we're not just trying to remove the alcohol out and then see if we've got a good product left. We utilise native botanical extracts to create the different flavour notes or the different textures and aromas that, that we really are looking for in, um, in our products so that they might resemble something like a, an Aussie sparkling. And is it improving, getting the taste to be as good as possible? An academic I spoke to said that in just a few short years, the industry has come quite a long way. Do you think there's still improvements to be made? Certainly. There certainly are um, improvements that have been made in the last couple of years to that point, but yeah, we're still working and well, the wine industry is trying to find ways to give more um, tasty options and different levels of alcohol, whether it's low alcoholic wine or, or mid-strength wine. But yeah, look, I think we're still at the beginning of this. The category is growing in popularity. So when things are popular and there's consumer demand, uh, a lot more people get to work. Polka Drops co-owner and founder Ben Mellows. So is Nolo Wine really here to stay? Katie Spain writes about beverages for many national Australian publications. Giving up alcohol herself for a month earlier this year, she has explored many Nolo Wine options. Miss Spain says consumers are very thirsty when it comes to content about all things Nolo. Nolo, as they call it, no and low alcohol, is a huge trend at the moment. Occasionally I hear the word kind of burgeoning thrown around but it's booming it's huge there, I don't think there's a single beverage or alcoholic beverage around that has isn't um, that producers aren't having a crack at made it, making a no or low alcohol version and is it something within the industry people are wanting to hear more about are you getting inquiries about no low wine do your readers want to hear more about those options they are desperate for information about it. Anytime I write a piece on NOLO, it, it goes crazy online, gets a lot of cr- clicks. Uh, and I do, you know, if I post something on Instagram, which I do often, if I find a drink, um, alcoholic or otherwise, that I really genuinely love, I'll often just pop it up on Instagram. And I found that when I find something with zero alcohol, like a, a German Riesling, for example, people get in touch a lot with a lot more enthusiasm often than when I post about something with alcohol in it. So there's a genuine interest, I think, because people are looking for, for beverages and alcohol alternatives that are that are really great. And so when I post something uh, that is genuinely good, uh, they want to know what it is and where they can get it from. Right, because with you know traditional alcohol wine, of course, there's many different guides within Australia to give you tips on where to find the best drops and, and, and what the best drops of the year have been. So really people are looking for that kind of guide, guidance when it comes to no and low options as well. They are. They're really curious. And I think because... Because there are some duds out there, I think that when you do find the good ones, it's, it's great to, to share it. And people, people, we're living in hard times, aren't we? You know, financially, I think people want to feel confident about where they're putting their hard-earned dollars. So any tips that, that I can give them um, is always very warmly received. Yeah, so it really is here to stay then. Oh, yeah, it's here to stay. Uh, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and I, I think the, the more quality products we see out there, the, the, the really good ones will rise to the top and they will stick around.
beverage and food writer Katie Spain ending that story from Elsie Adamo. We've had a couple of texts come through about no and low wines, polka, de, um, polka no wines, uh, no alcoholic wines. Uh, who we heard from before. They are made uh, locally and locally produced and going gangbusters in SA. Tastes like the real thing. Cheers, Mike. And uh, Heidi from Loxon also texted in, no and low wines are terrible. We've had and tried so many and not a single one has been found to resemble the flavour of a regular wine. So there you go. Lots of uh, opinions on the no and low wine. We also had a text come through from Sally at Lock. She said, this weather's crazy. They have had not a drop of rain at Lock. So it is. So fingers crossed for the weekend. If you need the rain, I hope you get it. If you don't, I hope it uh, goes away. Have a good weekend. It's coming up to news time. It's one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather.